And we'll be spending our Sundays in August and September exploring each Sunday morning and going deeper and deeper into what is one of Paul's earliest epistles and, in fact, one of his most practical. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, and we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your great endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he returned, excuse me, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us, rescues us from the coming wrath. Some of us from time to time have found ourselves participating in what is called a personality profile. And many of you will be familiar with them, perhaps the Myers-Briggs personality profile or DISC, D-I-S-C, use one. Here at First Press for our staff a few years ago, we used Strength Finders, which personally I found of immense value. You pick up the book from a bookstore, you go online, you answer 70 or 75 questions, and it sends you back a report telling you where your natural strengths lie, what your personality uh, enjoys the most, and they are popular tools for employers who are interviewing potential employees. And often they will tell you, in terms of the personality profile, who is outgoing and task-orientated. Or perhaps a potential employee is more people-orientated. It sometimes can indicate those who thrive as they interact and collaborate with colleagues. It will tell you those who are reserved and more comfortable in a supportive and team environment. Sometimes it highlights those who excel in research and development, those who have an eye for accuracy and detail, those who focus on production value, interested in consistency and quality information, Others value trust, competency, and integrity. And like so many things, they are simply a tool but can be helpful. And if you will allow me to draw a parallel 
between the personality profiles we use today and going way back to the year 49 or 50 AD, when the Apostle Paul is writing to this young, growing church in the midst of this busy, vibrant, thriving city of Thessalonica, it's almost as if he is assessing them, telling them what he's hearing about them, what are the dominant themes in their corporate life together as a church. He then goes on to talk to them about areas that have growth potential. And you can see the parallels right there. And there's another sense in which, if you'll forgive me, I'll use another analogy. We've entitled this series, Heart to Heart. And it's my trust and hope and prayer that on Sunday mornings, as we get deeper and deeper and deeper into First Thessalonians, it will almost be as if God is taking you out to lunch late on a Sunday morning. And he's sitting down with you. And he's having that heart to heart that moves the conversation from the superfluous down to the personal and then to the deep and profound and the spiritual. And as God begins to draw us in in a Sunday morning and begins to take our conversation to that whole new level, don't be surprised if you hear him speaking to you and challenging you and equipping you and preparing you for all that you are facing in your own life. That often happens on Sundays when we engage with the Word of God. And so hopefully that's where we're going. Paul had traveled to the region of Thessalonica. If you have your sermon study notes in front of you, you'll see it. Right in the center of those, that picture, you'll see the island of Crete. And if you go to the north, following the grid line directly north, you'll see Apollonia. And then from Apollonia, go to your west a little and slightly north, you'll see the town of Thessalonica. And all of this takes place, as I said, around the year 4950 AD, the end of Acts chapter 16. And Paul gets to Thessalonica in the opening verses, verses 1 to 9 of Acts 17. If I can encourage you, take a few minutes, you'll read it in less than 60 seconds this week, pull out your Bible, turn to Acts 17, read about Paul visiting the town of Thessalonica, and what you discover here is this, and please remember the larger picture, because up to this point in the history of God's redemptive purposes, the gospel had been confined to the Middle East. And now, in an unprecedented fashion, in fact, as you look at the map, the gospel moves into Europe for the first time. And it happens at Neapolis and Philippi, and then on down to Thessalonica and Berea, and then Athens and Corinth. And when Paul is right there in Thessalonica, his message is so powerful. He impacts lives. The gospel transforms those lives, and he radically upsets the Jewish leadership that is there. So much so, in fact, he had to flee to the south to Athens and Corinth because they had charged Paul with treason. 
Now, today, treason is a very serious charge. Back then, Paul was charged with treason on this basis, that Claudius, the Roman emperor, was to be worshipped, and only Claudius was to be worshipped. And so the Jewish leaders fabricated a charge against Paul and said, what he is saying is treasonous. He's telling us that this Jesus of Nazareth is king, and we know, in fact, that Claudius is our emperor and our king. And they stirred up a mob in the marketplace so badly that a riot broke out, and Paul had to be rescued, in fact. And then he was escorted out of the town, moving on down, as you can see in the map, to Athens and Corinth. And several months later, when he was in Corinth, Timothy, who'd stayed behind probably with Silas, Timothy comes to Corinth and visits the apostle Paul and tells him about the spectacular transformation that is taking place in this young church in the midst of this growing, vibrant city. And Paul is so encouraged, he writes to the folks at Thessalonica to say, well done. I'm so proud of you. I hear wonderful things. I am absolutely thrilled and delighted we have been praying for you. And that gives you the contextual backdrop as to what's taking place. Now, notice how he begins. He brings his greetings as he often does. He finishes with grace and peace to you. And then in verse 2, he writes, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. Now, notice his phrasing. We always thank God for all of you. Now, that all of you, if you translate that back into classical Greek, not modern Greek, the translation is, we always give thanks to all y'all. Okay, so it's as simple as that. It's right there. And that has led some, very few New Testament scholars to think that Paul's antecedents had a southern connection. Now, I'm not convinced, but some are saying that's the case. So there he is. So please forgive all my silliness, but you get the point. He is delighted and thrilled with how the church in Thessalonica is responding to the gospel that God has wrapped them in his arms of love and grace. He's drawn them into that wonderful, deep, profound, intimate relationship with himself. And they have responded in spectacular fashion. And as he writes, he goes on and he says, verse, continuing on, verse 3, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is writing to them, not only encouraging them, but he's bringing affirmation and appreciation. Affirmation, he gives thanks for who they are. That's affirmation, but he goes on to express appreciation for what they have done. And please understand this, that God is always, always, always more interested in who you are than what you do, because he knows that character, integrity, 
holiness, righteousness, obedience, faithfulness is important. It's critical and crucial in the Christian life long before what we do. And that's the point he's making. He's bringing affirmation and appreciation, grateful and thankful to God for their work. Notice the phrase again, produced by faith and prompted by love. And also your endurance inspired by the hope, in other words, the relationship you have with Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul is telling them right there that your motivation and your desire to live out your faith is to be applauded because Paul in the first century and we in the 21st century know what it means to live out our faith. And as we live out our faith day by day, week by week, month by month, we always do so in the daily distractions and messiness of everyday life. None of us, none of us have perfect circumstances. None of us have the ideal situation. Each day we'll be challenged or find distractions about growing in our faith. But Paul is saying when God puts his hand upon you and exposes your heart and mind and soul to the gospel and you respond to his love and grace, he never calls you out of an everyday situation. But what he does do is he equips you and strengthens you to meet the challenges you are facing. Because God always shapes and fashions and changes you and refines you in order to respond to the situation you're in. Almost always in Scripture, he resists drawing people out of their daily situation, but equips them to live out their faith right there and right then. And how does he do it? He does it simply by drawing you into a deeper relationship with himself, of refining you, of capturing your attention and your imagination and whispering to your soul and telling you at times quietly, unobtrusively, almost silently, consistently, you're mine. I have you. We can handle this. And then he goes about that lifelong exercise of refining us and shaping us and making us more Christ-like. And he insists on doing that. And so here is this young church amidst this vibrant, growing city, sensing God at work in those sacred spaces in their lives. And so in writing to them, he's encouraging them. He's telling them to stick at it. I'm delighted with your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. And he's writing to them personally and shaping and fashioning and encouraging them. Now notice what comes next. As he moves into verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. 
What is he saying? He is saying this, that when God reaches out and touches you through the wonder of the gospel, he doesn't do it simply by words alone. Now, that's a strange thing for the Apostle Paul to say, because he's clearly an individual who enjoys using words. He appreciates and values language. He has written more books in the New Testament than any other biblical author. So, when he says, the gospel comes to you not merely with words, we pay attention, because we know that words bring affirmation. We know that words are helpful to encourage us and strengthen us and build us up. They bring assurance and reassurance. So, what does he mean? What he's saying is this, that it's not simply with words, but in fact, God gives to us his greatest gift, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, please understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying. Remember, this is a man who holds language and words at a premium. Truth has meaning. And Paul is saying, for all of the knowledge of God we gather through what we say, for the truth of the gospel, he has gone that extra step, and he has given to you the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit. In other words, your work prompted by love, your enduring in the faith, your working out of your faith at times in difficult and challenging circumstances is done not only because of your own commitment and dedication, but you are equipped and strengthened by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you worship with us regularly, or you watch our television broadcast, or you're following live this morning on the net, you will know that from time to time on Sunday morning, I have a tendency to repeat myself. And so let me say again what you have heard me say multiple times, but it is so important to get it. And here it is, that the same moral and supernatural power that brought Christ back from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's what Paul is going to great lengths to talk about. We heard it from Brian in our prayers earlier, that he brings freedom and grace. He strengthens us. He gives us the ability to follow him. He allows us to fall in love with him through the consistent ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So when you're tempted to think, I'm on my own. I can't do this. I cannot go any further. Please understand that God, the Holy Spirit, is right there encouraging, equipping, strengthening, and enabling you to do much more than you could ask or imagine. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. New Testament theologians talk of it as union with Christ, and it's one of the great doctrines of the New Testament. Now, having said all of that, 
where does Paul take them next? He says, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And here it comes at verse 7. And so you became a model to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What is Paul saying? He's saying this. As you live out your faith in Thessalonica, you are impacting and having an influence with those you love. And in the 21st century, he's doing the self-same thing. He's speaking down through the tunnels of time, and he's saying to those of you at first prayers, as you live out your faith, you're not on your own. He doesn't save you and love you and then abandon you. He gives you his spirit to dwell within you. And when you go to yet another soccer match for your seven-year-old grandchild and you would rather be at home, when you're shuffling and chauffeuring your children to ballet classes and piano lessons and soccer practice and so many other things we get involved with, what you are doing is much greater and deeper and richer than you initially imagined. You are modeling for them what it means to love them. When your grandchildren come for a sleepover and they stay up late with pizza and they have fun and games with Nana and Papa and the next day you fill them with sugar and then send them home, that is when you love them. That gives you the right to speak into those young lives. You are modeling genuine, authentic love and care and grace. That's what's going on. That's what Paul is calling them to. You are modeling your faith, and that has an impact, and it's a wonder to behold. Because our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and the folks at work will listen to us when they know we care. Living out our faith is demanding. At times it's unsettling. At times it is seriously uncomfortable. Now, let me pause and try and wrap all of this up this morning. You may be saying, Richard, I've been listening. I get it. I'm thankful for the practical illustrations of spending time in his presence being refined and shaped and fashioned by him, I get that. I also get that living out my faith day by day with my children and my grandchildren and the people in my neighborhood, in my place of work, and I understand at times living out our Christian faith will be challenging, it will be hard, it will be taxing, it will cost us, and it will. But is that where we stop? only seeking to influence and impact our circle of friends and family? Or is there more? I am absolutely convinced that as a nation, we are standing at a moral and spiritual crossroads. This time last 
Sunday morning, we were grieving lives taken in El Paso and in Idaho. Or Dayton, excuse me. And not only were we grieving the loss of parents and grandparents and brothers and sisters and mums and dads and children, we were grieving because it's happened yet again. We were grieving because our culture is heading in a direction that at times we abhor. And at times it shows and demonstrates the manifest evil of pernicious wickedness. Individuals addicted to and intoxicated by their own ego and self-importance. And we need to say we are restless to be rid of the insipid stagnation of the status quo and hear on out moral and spiritual standards matter. And we say it loudly and prayerfully and carefully through consensus for in God we trust. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this challenging passage of Scripture. Thank you that it calls us to live out our faith, to be shaped and fashioned by your enabling grace and the power of your Spirit. Grant us, please, O oh God, to stand firm for Christian values and standards in order that we might be the people and the nation you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.